Now it is out of such a heart as this that all true holy affections do flow. Christian affections are like Mary's precious ointment that she poured on Christ's head that filled the whole house with a sweet odor. That was poured out of an alabaster box. So gracious affections flow out to Christ out of a pure heart. That was poured out of a broken box. Until the box was broken, the ointment could not flow, nor diffuse its odor. So gracious affections flow out of a broken heart. Gracious affections are also like those of Mary Magdalene, Luke 7, at the latter end, who also pours precious ointment on Christ out of an alabaster broken box, anointing therewith the feet of Jesus, when she had washed them with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head. All gracious affections that are a sweet odor to Christ, and that fill the soul of a Christian with a heavenly sweetness and fragrancy, are broken-hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope, and their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy, and leaves the Christian more poor in spirit and more like a little child, and more disposed to an universal lowliness of behavior. The Religious Affections Evidence 7 Another thing wherein gracious affections are distinguished from others is that they are attended with a change of nature. All gracious affections do arise from a spiritual understanding in which the soul has the excellency and glory of divine things discovered to it, as was shown before. But all spiritual discoveries are transforming, and not only make an alteration of the present exercise, sensation, and frame of the soul, but such power and efficacy have they that they make an alteration in the very nature of the soul. Second Corinthians 3.18 But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Such power as this is properly divine power, and is peculiar to the Spirit of the Lord. Other power may make an alteration in men's present frames and feelings, but it is the power of a creator only that can change the nature, or give a new nature. And no discoveries or illuminations but those that are divine and supernatural will have the supernatural effect. But this effect, all those discoveries have that are truly divine. The soul is deeply affected by these discoveries, and so affected as to be transformed. Thus it is with those affections that the soul is the subject of in its conversion. The scripture representations of conversion do strongly imply and signify a change of nature, such as being born again, becoming new creatures, rising from the dead, being renewed in the spirit of the mind, dying to sin, and living to righteousness, putting off the old man and putting on the new man, a being engrafted into a new stock, a having a divine seed implanted in the heart, a being made partakers of the divine nature, and so on. Therefore, if there be no great and remarkable abiding change in persons, 
that think they have experienced a work of conversion. Vain are all their imaginations and pretenses, however they have been affected. I would not judge of the whole soul's coming to Christ, says Shepherd, so much by sudden pangs as by inward bent. For the whole soul, in affectionate expressions and actions, may be carried to Christ. But being without this bent and change of affections, it is unsound. End quote. Conversion is a great and universal change of the man, turning him from sin to God. A man may be restrained from sin before he is converted, but when he is converted, he is not only restrained from sin, his very heart and nature is turned from it unto holiness, so that thenceforward he becomes a holy person and an enemy to sin. If, therefore, after a person's high affections at his supposed first conversion, it comes to that in a little time that there is no very sensible or remarkable alteration in him as to those bad qualities and evil habits which before were visible in him, and he is ordinarily under the prevalence of the same kind of dispositions that he used to be, and the same thing seems to belong to his character, if he appears as selfish and carnal as stupid and perverse, as unchristian and unsavory as ever, it is greater evidence against him than the brightest story of experiences that ever was told is for him. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither high profession nor low profession, neither a fair story nor a broken one avails anything but a new creature. If there be a very great alteration visible in a person for a while, if it be not abiding, but he afterwards returns in a stated manner to be much as he used to be, it appears to be no change of nature, for nature is an abiding thing. A swine that is of a filthy nature may be washed, but the swiney's nature remains, and a dove that is of a cleanly nature may be defiled, but its cleanly nature remains." It is with the soul as with water. All the cold may be gone, but the native principle of cold remains still. You may remove the burning of lots, not the blackness of nature. Where the power of sin lies, change of conscience from security to terror, change of life from profaneness to civility, and fashions of the world, to escape the pollutions thereof, Change of lust may quench them for a time, but the nature is never changed in the best hypocrite that ever was, in quote, Thomas Shepherd. Indeed, allowances must be made for the natural temper. Conversion does not entirely root out the natural temper. Those sins which a man by his natural constitution was most inclined to before his conversion, he may be most apt to fall into still. Yet conversion will make a great alteration even with respect to these sins. Though grace, while imperfect, does not root out an evil natural temper, yet it is of great power and efficacy, with respect to it, to correct it. The change that is wrought in conversion is a universal change. Grace changes a man with respect to whatever is sinful in him. The old man is put off, and the new man put on. He is sanctified throughout, and the man becomes a new creature. Old things are passed away, and all things are become new. 
All sin is mortified, constitutional sins as well as others. If a man before his conversion was by his natural constitution especially inclined to lasciviousness or drunkenness or maliciousness, converting grace will make a great alteration in him with respect to these evil dispositions, so that, however he may be still most in danger of these sins, yet they shall no longer have dominion over him, nor will they any more be properly his character. Yea, true repentance does in some respects especially turn a man against his own iniquity, that wherein he has been most guilty and has chiefly dishonored God. He that forsakes other sins but saves his leading sin, the iniquity is chiefly inclined to, is like Saul when sent against God's enemies, the Amalekites, with a strict charge to save none of them alive, but utterly to destroy them, small and great, who utterly destroyed inferior people, but saved the king, the chief of them all, alive. Some foolishly make it an argument in favor of their discoveries and affections, that when they are gone, they are left wholly without any life or sense, or anything beyond what they had before. They think it an evidence that what they experience was wholly of God and not of themselves, because, say they, when God is departed, all is gone. They can see and feel nothing, and are no better than they used to be. It is very true that all grace and goodness in the hearts of the saints is entirely from God, and they are universally and immediately dependent on Him for it. But yet these persons are mistaken as to the manner of God's communicating Himself and His Holy Spirit in imparting saving grace to the soul. He gives His Spirit to be united to the faculties of the soul, and to dwell thereafter the manner of a principle of nature, so that the soul, in being endued with grace, is endued with a new nature. But nature is an abiding thing. All the exercises of grace are entirely from Christ, but are not from Him as a living agent moves and stirs what is without life, and which yet remains lifeless. The soul has life communicated to it, so that through Christ's power it has inherit in itself a vital nature. In the soul where Christ savingly is, there he lives. He not only lives without it, so as violently to actuate it, but he lives in it, so that the soul also is alive. Grace in the soul is as much from Christ as a light in a glass held out in the sunbeams is from the sun. But this represents a manner of the communication of grace to the soul only in part, because the glass remains in it as it was, the nature of it not being at all changed, it is as much without any lightsomeness in its nature as ever. But the soul of a saint receives light from the sun of righteousness in such a manner that its nature is changed, and it becomes properly a luminous thing. Not only does the sun shine in the saints, but they also become little suns, partaking of the nature of the fountain of their light. In this respect, the manner of their derivation of light is like that of the lamps in the tabernacle, rather than that of a reflecting glass, which, though they were lit up by fire from heaven, yet thereby became themselves burning, shining things. The saints not only drink of the water of life that flows from the original fountain, but this water becomes a fountain of water in them, springing up there and flowing out of them. John 4:14 4, and chapter 7:38 and 39. 
9. Grace is compared to a seed implanted that not only is in the ground, but has hold of it, has root there, and grows there, and is an abiding principle of life and nature there. As it is with spiritual discoveries and affections given at first conversion, so it is in all subsequent illuminations and affections of that kind. They are all transforming. There is a like divine power and energy in them, as in the first discoveries. They still reach the bottom of the heart, and affect and alter the very nature of the soul, in proportion to the degree in which they are given. And a transformation of nature is continued and carried on by them to the end of life, until it is brought to perfection and glory. Hence, the progress of the work of grace in the hearts of the saints as represented in Scripture is a continued conversion and renovation of nature. So the Apostle exhorts those that were at Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, and that were subjects of God's redeeming mercies, to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. Romans 12, 1 and 2 I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Compared with chapter 1-7. So the apostle writing to the saints and faithful in Christ Jesus that were at Ephesus, Ephesians 1-1, those who were once dead in trespasses and sins, but were now quickened and raised up, and made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ, and created in Christ Jesus unto good works, that were once far off, but were now made nigh by the blood of Christ, and that were no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and that were built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit, I say, the apostle writing to these tells him, that he ceased not to pray for them, that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ, the eyes of their understanding being enlightened, that they might know or experience what was the exceeding greatness of God's power towards them that believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1.16 to the end. And this the apostle has respect to the glorious power and work of God in converting and renewing the soul, as is most plain by the sequel. So the apostle exhorts the same persons to put off the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of their minds, and to put on the new men, man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, Ephesians 4, 22-24. There is a sort of high affections that some have from time to time that leave them without any manner of appearance of an abiding effect. They go off suddenly, so that from the very height of their emotion and seeming rapture, they pass at once to be quite dead and void of all sense and activity. It surely is not one to be thus with high gracious affections. Do you think the Holy Ghost comes on a man, as on Balaam, by immediate acting, and then leaves him, and then he has nothing? End quote, Shepherd's Parable. As Moses' face not only shone while he was in the mount, extraordinarily conversing with God, but it continued to shine after he came down from the mount. 
When men have been conversing with Christ in an extraordinary manner, there is a sensible effect of it remaining upon them. There is something remarkable in their disposition and frame, which if we take knowledge of and trace to its cause, we shall find it is because they have been with Jesus. Acts 4.13 Section 8 Truly gracious affections differ from those affections that are false and delusive, and that they tend to and are attended with the lamb-like, dove-like spirit and temper of Jesus Christ. In other words, they naturally beget and promote such a spirit of love, meekness, quietness, forgiveness and mercies appeared in Christ. The evidence of this in the scripture is very abundant. If we judge of the nature of Christianity and the proper spirit of the gospel by the word of God, the spirit is what may, by way of eminency, be called the Christian spirit. It may be looked upon as a true and distinguishing disposition of the hearts of Christians as Christians. When some of the disciples of Christ said something, through inconsideration and infirmity, that was not agreeable to such a spirit, Christ told them that they knew not what manner of spirit they were of, Luke 9.55, implying that the spirit that I am speaking of is the proper spirit of his religion and kingdom. All that are truly godly and real disciples of Christ have this spirit in them, and not only so, but they are of this spirit. It is the spirit by which they are so possessed and governed that it is their true and proper character. This is evident by what the wise man says, Proverbs 17:27, having respect plainly to such a spirit as this. A man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. And by the particular description Christ gives of the qualities and temper of such as are truly blessed, that shall obtain mercy, and are God's children and heirs, Matthew 5, 5, 7, and 9. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And that the Spirit is a special character of the elect of God is manifested by Colossians 3:12 and 13. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. The Apostle speaking of that temper and disposition which he speaks of is the most excellent and essential thing in Christianity, and that without which none are true Christians. And the most glorious profession and gifts are nothing, calling this spirit by the name of charity. He describes it thus, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5, Charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not, Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. And the same apostle designedly declaring the distinguishing marks and fruits of true Christian grace, 
chiefly insists on the things that appertain to such a temper and spirit as I am speaking of, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And so does the Apostle James in describing true grace, or that wisdom that is from above, with a declared design that others who are of a contrary spirit may not deceive themselves and lie against the truth in professing to be Christians when they are not. James 3, 14-17 If ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envy and strife is, there is confusion, and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits. Everything that appertains to holiness of heart does indeed belong to the nature of true Christianity and the character of Christians. But a spirit of holiness, as appearing in some particular graces, may more especially be called the Christian spirit or temper. Some amiable qualities and virtues more especially agree with the nature of the gospel constitution and Christian profession because there is a special agreeableness in them with those divine attributes which God has more remarkably manifested and glorified in the work of redemption by Jesus Christ, the grand subject of the Christian revelation, and also a special agreeableness with those virtues that were so wonderfully exercised by Jesus Christ towards us in that affair, and the blessed example he hath therein set us. And likewise, because they are peculiarly agreeable to the special drift and design of the work of redemption, and the benefits we thereby receive, and the relation that it brings us into to God and one another. These virtues are such as humility, meekness, love, forgiveness, and mercy. These things, therefore, especially belong to the character of Christians as such. These things are spoken of as what are especially the character of Jesus Christ himself, the great head of the Christian church. They are so spoken of in the prophecies of the Old Testament, as in that cited in Matthew 21, 5. Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the full of an ass. So Christ himself speaks of them, Matthew 11.29, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. The same appears by the name by which Christ is so often called in scriptures, the Lamb. And as these things are especially the character of Christ, so they are also especially the character of Christians. Christians are Christ-like. None deserve the name of Christians that are not so in their prevailing character. The new man is renewed after the image of him that created him, Colossians 3.10. 
All true Christians behold as in a glass the glory of the Lord and are changed into the same image by His Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18 The elect are all predestinated to be conformed to the image of the Son of God that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans 8.29 As we have borne the image of the first man that is earthy, so we must also bear the image of the heavenly. For as is the earthy, so are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. 1 Corinthians 15:47-49. Christ is full of grace, and Christians all receive of His fullness and grace for grace i.e., there is grace in Christians answering to grace in Christ. Such an answerableness as there is between the wax and the seal. There is character for character. Such kind of graces, such a spirit and temper, the same things that belong to Christ's character belong to theirs. In that disposition wherein Christ's character does in a special manner consist, does his image in a special manner consist? Christians who shine by reflecting the light of the sun of righteousness shine with the same sort of brightness, the same mild, sweet, and pleasant beams. These lamps of the spiritual temple that are enkindled by fire from heaven burn with the same sort of flame. The branches of the same nature with a stalk and root has the same sap and bears the same sort of fruit. The members have the same kind of life with the head. It would be strange if Christians should not be of the same temper and spirit that Christ is of, when they are his flesh and his bone, yea, are one spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.17, and so live, that it is not that they live, but Christ that lives in them. A Christian spirit is Christ's mark that he sets upon the souls of his people, his seal in their foreheads, bearing his image and superscription. Christians are the followers of Christ, and they are so as they are obedient to that call of Christ. Matthew six twenty-eight and 29 Come unto me, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. They follow him as the Lamb, Revelations 14.4. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. True Christians are, as it were, clothed with the meek, quiet, and loving temper of Christ. For as many as are in Christ have put on Christ. And in this respect... The church is closed with the Son, not only by being closed with His imputed righteousness, but also by being adorned with His graces. Romans 13.14 Christ, the great shepherd, is Himself a lamb, and believers are also lambs. All the flock are lambs. John 21.15 Feed my lambs. Luke 10.3 I send you forth as lambs among wolves. The redemption of the church by Christ from the power of the devil was typified of old by David's delivering the lamb out of the mouth of the lion and the bear. 
that such manner of virtue as has been spoken of is the very nature of the Christian spirit, or the spirit that worketh in Christ and in his members, is evident by this, that the dove is a very symbol or emblem chosen of God to represent it. Though things are fittest emblems of other things, which best represent that which is most distinguishing in their nature, the spirit that descended on Christ when he was anointed of the Father descended on him like a dove. The dove is a noted emblem of meekness, harmlessness, peace, and love. But the same spirit that descended on the head of the church descends to the members. God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts. Galatians 4, 6 And if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Romans 8, 9 There is but one spirit to the whole mystical body, head and members. 1 Corinthians six seventeen, Ephesians 4, 4 Christ breathes his own spirit on his disciples. John twenty twenty two. As Christ was anointed with the Holy Ghost descending on him like a dove, so Christians also have an anointing from the Holy One, 1 John 2, 20 and 27. And they are anointed with the same oil. It is the same precious ointment on the head that goes down to the skirts of the garments. And on both, it is the spirit of peace and love. Psalm 133, 1 and 2. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. The oil on Aaron's garments had the same sweet and inimitable odor with that on his head. The smell of the same sweet spices, Christian affections, and a Christian behavior is but the flowing out of the savor of Christ's sweet ointments. Because the church has a dove-like temper and disposition, therefore it is said of her that she has dove's eyes. Canticles 1.15 Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes. In chapter 4, 1, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. The same is said of Christ. Chapter 5, 12, His eyes are as the eyes of doves. And the church is frequently compared to a dove in Scripture. Canticles 2, 14. O oh, my dove, thou art in the clefts of the rock. Chapter 5, 2. Open to me, my love, my dove. And chapter 6, 9. My dove, my undefiled is but one. Psalm 68:13. He shall be as the wings of a dove, covered with silver, and her feathers with yellow gold. And 74, 19. O deliver not the soul of thy turtle dove unto the multitude of the wicked. The dove that Noah sent out of the ark, that could find no rest for the sole of her foot until she returned, was a type of a true saint. Meekness is so much the character of the saints, that the meek 
and the godly are used as synonymous terms in Scripture. So in Psalm 37, 10 and 11, the wicked and the meek are set in opposition one to another, as wicked and godly. Yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be, but the meek shall inherit the earth. The Lord lifteth up the meek, he casteth the wicked down to the ground. It is doubtless very much on this account that Christ represents all his disciples, all the heirs of heaven, as little children. Matthew 19.14 Suffer little children, and forbid them not to come unto me, for as such is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 10.42 Whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water, only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. Matthew 18.6 Whoso shall offend one of these little ones, and so on. Verse 10 Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. Verse 14 it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. John thirteen thirty three, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Little children are innocent and harmless. They do not do a great deal of mischief in the world, and need not be afraid of them. They are no dangerous sort of persons. Their anger does not last long. They do not lay up injuries in high resentment, entertaining deep and rooted malice. So Christians in malice are children, 1 Corinthians 14.20. Little children are not guileful and deceitful, but plain and simple. They are not versed in the arts of fiction and deceit and are strangers to artful disguises. They are yielding and flexible, and not willful and obstinate. Do not trust to their own understanding, but rely on the instruction of parents and others of superior understanding. Here is, therefore, a fit and lively emblem of the followers of the Lamb. Persons being thus like little children, is not only a thing highly commendable in what Christians approve of and aim at, and which some of extraordinary proficiency attain to, but it is their universal character, and absolutely necessary in order to entering into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18.3 Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Mark 10.15 Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. But here some may be ready to say, Is there no such thing as Christian fortitude and boldness for Christ? Being good soldiers in the Christian warfare, and coming out boldly against the enemies of Christ and his people, to which I answer, there doubtless is such a thing. The whole Christian life is compared to a warfare, and fitly so. The most eminent Christians are the best soldiers, endued with the greatest degrees of Christian fortitude.
It is the duty of God's people to be steadfast and vigorous in their opposition to the designs and ways of such as are endeavoring to overthrow the kingdom of Christ in the interest of religion. But yet many persons seem to be quite mistaken concerning the nature of Christian fortitude. It is an exceeding diverse thing from a brutal fierceness, or the boldness of beasts of prey. True Christian fortitude consists in strength of mind, through grace, exerted in two things, in ruling and suppressing the evil and unruly passions and affections of the mind, and in steadfastly and freely exerting and following good affections and dispositions, without being hindered by sinful fear or the opposition of enemies. But the passions that are restrained and kept under in the exercise of this Christian strength and fortitude are those very passions that are vigorously and violently exerted in a false boldness for Christ. And those affections that are vigorously exerted in true fortitude are those Christian holy affections that are directly contrary to them. Though Christian fortitude appears in withstanding and counteracting the enemies that are without us, yet it much more appears in resisting and suppressing the enemies that are within us, because they are our worst and strongest enemies and have greatest advantage against us. The strength of the good soldier of Jesus Christ appears in nothing more than in steadfastly maintaining the holy calm meekness, sweetness, and benevolence of his mind amidst all the storms, injuries, strange behavior, and surprising acts and events of this evil and unreasonable world. The scripture seems to intimate the true fortitude consists chiefly in this, Proverbs 16.32. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. The directest and surest way in the world to make a right judgment of what is a holy fortitude in fighting with God's enemies is to look to the captain of all God's hosts and our great leader and example, and see wherein his fortitude and valor appeared in his chief conflict, and in the time of the greatest battle that ever was or ever will be fought with these enemies, when he fought with them all alone, and of the people there was none with him. He exercised his fortitude in the highest degree that ever he did, and got that glorious victory that will be celebrated in the praises and triumphs of all the hosts of heaven throughout all eternity. Behold Jesus Christ in the time of his last sufferings, when his enemies in earth and hell made their most violent attack upon him, compassing him round on every side, like rending and roaring lions. Doubtless here we shall see the fortitude of a holy warrior and champion in the cause of God in his highest perfection and greatest luster, and an example fit for the soldiers to follow the fight under this captain. But how did he show his holy boldness and valor at that time? Not in the exercise of any fiery passions, not in fierce and violent speeches, vehemently declaiming against the intolerable wickedness of opposers, giving them their own in plain terms, 
but in not opening his mouth when afflicted and oppressed, in going as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, not opening his mouth, praying that the Father would forgive his cruel enemies because they knew not what they did, not shedding others' blood, but with all conquering patience and love shedding his own. Indeed, one of his disciples that made a forward pretense to boldness for Christ, and confidently declared he would sooner die with Christ than deny him, began to lay about him with a sword. But Christ meekly rebukes him and heals the wound he gives. Never was a patience, meekness, love, and forgiveness of Christ so gloriously manifest as at that time. Never did he appear so much a lamb, and never did he show so much of the dove-like spirit as at that time. If therefore we see any of the followers of Christ in the midst of the most violent and reasonable and wicked opposition of God's and his own enemies, maintaining under all this temptation the humility and quietness and gentleness of a lamb, and the harmlessness and love and sweetness of a dove, we may well judge that here is a good soldier of Jesus Christ. When persons are fierce and violent and exert their sharp and bitter passions, it shows weakness instead of strength and fortitude. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 3 And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envy and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? There is a pretended boldness for Christ that arises from no better principle than pride. A man may be forward to expose himself to the dislike of the world, and even to provoke their displeasure out of pride. For it is the nature of spiritual pride to cause men to seek distinction and singularity, and so oftentimes to set themselves at war with those that they call carnal, that they may be more highly exalted among their party. True boldness for Christ is universal and overcomes all, and carries men above the displeasure of friends and foes, so that they will forsake all rather than Christ and will rather offend all parties, and be thought meanly of by all, than offend Christ. And that duty which tries whether a man is willing to be despised by them that are of his own party, and thought the least worthy to be regarded by them, is a much more proper trial of his boldness for Christ than his being forward to expose himself to the reproach of opposers. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 
450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.